interesting chariots um, were the, 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 the power weapons and instruments and um, vehicles in the ancient world. They were the powerhouse weapon. Um, and when we come to the last vision in Zechariah chapter 6, we are going to see chariots with multiple horses come out in this vision. So let's look down in uh, Zechariah 6, verse 1. And I turned and lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there came four chariots out from between two mountains, and the mountains uh, were the mountains of brass, were mountains of brass. In the first chariot were red horses. Notice plural. So this is, this is a chariot being pulled by horses. In the second chariot, they're black horses. In the third chariot, they're white horses. In the fourth chariot, grizzled in the King James and bay horses are strong, um, speckled, spotted horses. Then I answered and said unto the angel that talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Zachariah's been asking this question all night long. And the angel answered and said unto me, These are the four spirits, or the four winds of the heavens, which go forth from standing before the Lord of all the earth. And the black horses which are therein go forth into the north country, and the white go forth after them, they follow them, and the grizzled horse uh, go forward toward the south country. So uh, two groups go north, one goes south, the bay went forth, this would be the strong went forth, they all went forth and sought to go that they might walk to and fro or patrol through the earth. And he said, get you hence, patrol, go to and forth, walk to and fro through the whole earth. So they walked to and fro through the earth. Then cried he upon, or he upon me and spake unto me saying, behold, these that go towards the north country have quieted or rested my spirit in the north country. And then there's a period, and notice verse 9. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying. And uh, just for the sake of time at this moment, we'll stop uh, right there. We are in the last of eight visions seen by Zechariah, all in one night. The th last three visions, 6, 7, and 8, all focus on the judgment of God. The flying scroll through the air that lands in somebody's living room and shows the judgment of God's word upon every person. The woman in the barrel that we talked about last week, um, and now the four chariots, uh, the four spirits, as it's going to say and describe. Remember the previous vision of the ephah that we saw here, that Zechariah lifted up his eyes in chapter 5, saw this ephah, this is a, a measurement, so this is a barrel that would be filled with grain or corn, and he sees this, and this barrel is moving, um, and the angel then that lifted this heavy lead lid on top of the barrel to show what was inside. And when the angel lifted the lid, he looked inside and there was this woman sitting in the midst of the barrel. And her name was Wickedness. And she was the symbol of an evil, wicked empire or city who had risen itself up against God. And all rebellion is wrapped up in her. One evil woman. The angel throws her back into the barrel. So it seems like she's trying to get out. In this horror story. He throws her back into the barrel. He actually says that he, he, he thrusts her back down. And then he throws the lid back on top. He thrusts the lid back on top. So this is a violent 
um, moved by this angelic being with this uh, evil woman who is trying to get out and cause havoc. He was shown, again in this vision, that two women show up with wings and pick up the barrel with the lid on top and the woman inside, and they fly away, and they go off to the land of Babylon, Shinar, where they set the barrel down on top of a base, and then there is built a temple or a house. Anytime a house is built for an object or for a person or for a thing in such a way, uh, in these, oftentimes, these symbolism is talking about a place of worship. So we've seen this wicked woman in the reference to the wicked nations or cities or a city, one city, that will rise, it raise its ugly head up against God and his people. In prophecy, when we're looking to the end times, we saw this nation in this city is Babylon. It's connected with Babylon. And she will have a temple, a place of worship. She'll have a system of power where she will rule the world. And God will allow it under what we would see as the Antichrist. God takes seriously this stand of rebellion against him and he will not allow sin to go unpunished. And so in this next vision, the last vision, it's a continuation of the vision of the woman in the barrel. What is God going to do with this woman who's sitting on a base with this barrel, this city, this Babylon who has risen up and controls the whole world and there's evil everywhere? What's God going to do with that? So, what is going to happen with the culmination of evil in the end time? And so, this last vision is going to wrap some of that up. Now, I have an outline here, and I believe you can kind of see, if you're just looking at, you want to, you write outlines down. From verse 1 to verse 8 is the vision itself. We're going to talk about what he sees and the meaning. That's often been the way we've walked through these visions. In verse 9, 10, and 11, we're going to see an offering that is going to take place. Um, Zechariah is a good Baptist. And so he's going to take up an offering. All right, we'll get there. Three verses that are going to talk about that. And then the last portion of the chapter in verses 12 through 15 is a mention of the branch. There's something that's going to happen. There's an object lesson that is being shown. John MacArthur actually sees this, um, this chapter divided into two. A condemnation, which is the vision, and a coronation, which is the crowning of a king, starting in verse 8 or starting in verse 9. So there's two parts to that. We're going to see if we got some time. We're going to see as we move through this. Let's look at first at the vision. Note that this vision number 8 corresponds to vision number 1. I know it was a long time ago, and maybe you need to go back and read the visions again. But there seems to be a, cor a correlation between vision 1, vision 8, vision 2, vision 7, vision 3, vision 6, vision 4, vision 5. All right? And there's some other people who've done a lot of uh, study on some of that, and the correlation between the visions and how they're saying. But I think in this one you can, you can see it much more clearly because both vision 1 and vision 8 see men on horses patrolling, going to and from, and they're given orders. That's what we see in both of these visions. There's something going on with these horsemen and these, uh, these, these uh, riders on the horse being told. The language is in the wording is even similar. So, what does Zechariah see in this vision? He sees, first of all, four chariots. These chariots are pulled by horses that are color-coordinated. All right? 
You, they're, they're, they're given colors. We saw four horsemen in vision one. Those horsemen were also color coordinated. They were given colors. Now these horsemen are, are these horses are pulling these chariots and there's many of them. The chariots in the ancient world, as I told you, were the advanced military machines. To have a chariot meant that you were showing your military might. I think about the videos that I've seen in you know, World War II or even during the, um, during the Cold War, and, and sometimes it still happens too, where they would do these giant parades and, and have all the tanks and these giant trucks and these military uh, vehicles marching through, and then on top of them are these you know, giant rockets, and there's, it's a show of military force. Well, think about in the ancient world, when they, would, when they would show their military force, they would show them through the chariots that they had. This is one of the reasons in the Old Testament that God did not want the kings of Judah to count their horses and to count their chariots, because they didn't want them to trust in chariots, but to trust in the Lord. And so the, 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 the ancient world would trust in their military equipment. Is that any different than today? To trust in your military equipment to, um, to accomplish a task? Um, so where their trust is in. So this conveys military power and strength. Chariots speak of war. Notice there are two mountains that these chariots are riding in between. The chariots are riding down between two distinct mountains. Notice the definite article. The word mountain is not a mountain or a mountain or an a mountain. It is the mountains. These two specific mountains. They're picked out and it's not just any random. They're, they're specific to, to the translation, and that's important. They're distinct mountains that are going to take place. Each of these chariots have the horses are colored. The colors are red, black, white, grizzled. Um, I struggled with that in the King James here as we walk through. There's some other versions use the word dappled. They use the word spotted. The Hebrew word means to, to be spotted. It's used in Genesis 31 and verse 10, connected to the word speckled. So it would be a, a spotted uh, horse. And they are strong. The word bay is the word strong. It means uh, strong. Not just that horse, but all of the horses are mentioned to be strong. So what does this, what does this mean? This is what he's saying. Four horses, they're all colored with chariots that are being pulled. And these horsemen, obviously, you know, there's, a, there's, there's these four spirits that are in the chariots and they're moving between these two mountains and they're going to be told to go out and patrol, go to and fro throughout the earth. They're going to do some things when they're commanded to. What does this mean? Well, we see this in verse 4 through 8. Remember this vision is speaking of judgment. And in connection with the previous vision and the first vision, we are seeing God's judgment that is coming down. God must punish sin. That's his plan for the end of the age. It's going to culminate one day in this final rebellion against God. And God is going to come out of heaven and he will judge sin. The horsemen are God's tool that he uses for this judgment. In the vision, we are going to see them marching and patrolling. They seem to be sent out from Jerusalem. Notice the direction in the story where they're sent out north and south. If you were to look at a map and you see Jerusalem sits in the mountain range, you can't go east 
If you were sending out a military, you wouldn't go east because the Jordan River there, you've got to cross the Jordan River with, um, you know, how are you going to do that? There's no bridges there um, unless God decides to part the Jordan River and you can cross over on dry land, but that's another story. Once you get across the Jordan River, what's next if you keep going east? If you've ever been to the country of Jordan, if you ever, if you ever see in a map, there's nothing but desert. Desert, 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 as far as the eye could see. You wouldn't want to send a military that way. And if you were to go west in Palestine, in Israel, from Jerusalem, you would get maybe uh, 40 miles, and then you would run into a beach. And it's called the Mediterranean Sea. So the only way in and out of, the, of, of Israel is north and south. North would be the area of Iran, Iraq, Babylon, Persia, south would be the area of the Gaza Strip and Egypt. All right, those are, those are the two directions, north and south, that these um, troops are told or sent out. Uh, these horsemen are sent out. These are the exits to go out of the Holy Land, if you want to see it that way. Look down in verse 5. And the angel said, these are the four spirits of the heavens which go forth from standing before the Lord of all the earth. Now this is an interesting phrase, as this is uh, these spirits, we're given a description. These are, this is the word wind, interesting in the previous vision, the two women who had wings, there was the spirit that was under them that caused them to rise up and to go. But it's translated there, not as the word spirit, but as the word wind. But here it's the same exact word. So this could be the four winds of the earth or, or of, of the heavens or the four spirits of the heavens who come before, who have come. Where have they come from? They've come from standing before the presence of the Lord of all the earth. Now this is an interesting phrase. Daniel speaks of angels and when they leave heaven, they leave from before the presence of the Lord. When Gabriel was standing before Joseph, and he said, where have, you know, he said, I have come from standing before the presence of the Lord. And in Revelation, we are told that angels stand before the presence of the Lord. So I believe this gives us a description that we are seeing angelic beings. These are angels at the command of God who are riding these chariots and these horses and they are going to be given a, a command to, to patrol and to go throughout. Now, there's colors here. What do the colors mean? If we compare Scripture with Scripture, then we can draw this meaning from these colors. We go to Revelation chapter 6. You can go to Revelation chapter 6 if you want to because you're going to see a very similar vision take place when John sees similar horsemen who are going to be sent out. Remember, we're going from one apocalyptic book in Zechariah to another apocalyptic book, possibly seeing the same thing. And in Revelation chapter 6, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, I heard as it were a noise of, of thunder, one of four beasts saying, Come and see. So John is going to come and he's going to see what's going to happen. The Lamb has opened this seal, this scroll, and out is going to come the judgments of God. And they come in the form of horsemen. And I saw and behold a white horse. 
And he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Notice in Zechariah, we also have chariots with white horses. White means a symbol of, of conquering and victory. You wave the white flag. Right? This, is, this is a conquering. This is the same, similar. Different order, but similar meaning. And then verse 3. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard a second beast say, Come and see. Let's see what this one is going to be. And there went out another horse that was red. And power was given unto him that sat thereon to take away, to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a sword. So red speaks of war, bloodshed. To take peace away means war, worldwide violence and war. Verse 5, and when he had opened the third seal, I heard and uh, the third beast say, come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of scales or balances in his hand. And I heard the voice in the midst of the four beasts say, there's going to be a measure of wheat that will be sold for a penny and three measures of barley that will be sold for a penny. See thou hurt not the oil and the wine. All right? And so that black horse is going to talk of famine and death. These are plagues. These are judgments of God that are going to come out during the tribulation when we jump right here in uh, Revelation 6. And then notice the fourth horse that is mentioned in verse 7. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice and the fourth beast said, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And his name that sat on him, he's the only one named, was death. And hell followed him. And the power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth, 25%, to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and with beasts of the earth. And then that portion of the seals are, are going to be a, a little bit of a break before he opens the fifth seal. Uh, so the word pale is the Greek word chlorophyll. Green, ash, pale color. It's the color of death. And in that judgment, that judgment of death, there is going to be given power to this horseman to kill 25% of the world's population. I did the math today. 8 billion people in the world today. If 25% of 8 billion people were killed, that would be 2 billion people. In 1927, the world reached a population of 2 billion people. In 1927, that would have been the population of the entire world. 1927, that's a lot of people. Wearsby says that there was no spotted horse in John's vision, but the two seeing the vision of the spotted horse and the pale horse seemed to correlate together. A mixture of death, disease, plague, and pestilence. Notice the animals that are going to come out and death that is going to happen during this time. We're talking about God's judgment that is going to come during the time of the tribulation. So when we go back to Zechariah and we see these colors of these horses, we compare Scripture with Scripture, we're seeing God sending out judgment to this world. And notice here as well, these horses are coming out between 
two mountains. We talked about that. Did you notice the color of the mountains? These are mountains of bronze or brass. Do you remember what Moses made in the wilderness when they were bit by serpents? He made a serpent of brass. Just think about in the Old Testament, everything in these have meaning and significance, even though we may not always be able to be dogmatic of what those meanings are. But remember in the previous visions, there was a lot of connections to the temple. Zechariah is a priest. A lot of priestly image that's coming out of these symbols and these visions. In the temple, in the outer court portion of the temple, there was a brazen altar that was made 30 by 30 by 7 feet high. So it was a square, seven feet high with stairs that came up. And what happened on the brazen altar? The high priest would go up there and constantly burn, in, burn incense. That was brass. It was made of wood overladen, not with gold, not with silver, but with copper or a mix of zinc and copper, however, it was a strong metal of brass. Alongside the temple were ten brazen lavers that were made. There were two 30 feet high bronze pillars that Solomon made at the entrance of the temple and he gave them names. Remember what the names of those two 30 foot high bronze brass pillars when you walked into Solomon's temple? Boaz and Jochen. In the, in the court, there was a huge 15 foot diameter, 7 feet high Brazen sea, bronze sea. It was a giant bowl. I mean, you imagine a bowl 15 feet in diameter, standing 7 feet high, and underneath it are 12 oxen, 12 bulls, all made of bronze and brass, all in the inner court. When you came into the court of Solomon's temple, you looked around. Every article in the court was made with brass bronze. When you got into the holy place, if you actually opened the door, walked between those two pillars, you opened the door, the inside of the temple was not made of bronze, but pure gold, down to the curtains, all right? And the angels and the articles and the showbread and, and the incense and, and the, the, the different things that were going on. So, when that color was used in the temple, it was speaking to the Jewish people of judgment. Interesting in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 15. When John sees Jesus for the first time in his description with the white hair and the eyes. John says his feet. He right, his, his feet were like fine brass like they had been burnt in fire. In other words the significance of his feet being made of brass means that he is coming with judgment. And he's coming to bring judgment. And uh, so we see that. So bronze in the Old Testament, brass in the Old Testament, especially in symbolic literature, apocalyptic literature, spoke highly of judgment. And these two mountains seem to be associated with two mountains that you were standing in Jerusalem. If you were in Jerusalem, the two main mountain peaks in Jerusalem is Mount Zion and the Mount of Olives. And most scholars, these are two mountains that play very important to the Jewish people. They knew them significantly because they play a prominent role in prophecy. Mount of Olives will come up in Zechariah again when Jesus will come back and put his feet on the Mount of Olives. 
Mount Zion plays a significant role in prophecy because it will be on Mount Moriah, on Mount Zion, that Jesus will rule and reign the earth. Eusebius, who goes back to the 300s BC, an early uh, pastor and bishop in Jerusalem, uh, believed that these two mountains were Zion and, and Mount Olive. Most scholars since then have interpreted in a similar fashion. There is a valley between these two mountains. If you were standing on the Mount of Olives and you were looking over and you saw the Temple Mount, there's a valley in between the Mount of Olives and um, the Mount Zion. If you were standing at the Temple Mount, you were looking over at Mount, uh, Mount of Olives, you can see the Garden of Gethsemane, you can see the, the tombs that are up on the session, but there's a valley that runs in between. And in that valley, whenever there was a sacrifice in the temple, blood would spill down into that valley and it would make a creek of blood that would run down and it would intersect with another valley called the Valley of Hinnom. And they would intersect there and those two valleys meet and then they run to the Dead Sea about uh, 16, 20 miles to the south. Does anybody know what that valley is called between the Mount of Olives and the Mount, of, uh, Mount Zion? Anybody know? It's called the Kidron Valley. And this valley shows up in prophecy on several occasions. It shows up in Joel, when Joel is talking about the future war and battle of God's judgment upon the earth. Turn over to the book of Joel just to see that valley again. In Joel chapter 3. Joel is talking about the time where the Messiah will come and he will bring judgment to the world. In, in Joel chapter 3 in verse 9, to go to Joel, you've got to go back. He's one of the early portions of the minor prophets after Hosea. Joel chapter 3 in verse 9. And in verse 9 he says, he says among the Gentiles, you better prepare for war. You can underscore that. There's a battle coming. And this battle is going to beat their plowshares into swords and their pruning hooks into spears. And they'll say to God that I am strong. But in verse 12, let the heathen be awakened and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there will I sit to judge all the heathen and I will put in my sickle and the harvest is ripe and I will press it for their wickedness is great and the multitudes and multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near the valley of decision. The sun and the moon is going to be darkened. The stars are going to withdraw from shining and the Lord, in verse 16, shall roar out of Zion. And utter his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth will shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. What Joel is seeing is he is seeing the last battle of the end of the age. And he tells us where it takes place. It takes place in the valley of Jehoshaphat. The problem is there has never been a valley in and around Jerusalem called Jehoshaphat. If you look at any map, you're not going to find one. The word Jehoshaphat means Jehovah will judge. This is the place of God's judgment. It's given a proper name, but it's not called that in any of the maps. It wasn't called that in Jesus' day. But there was a vision that, or, or um, a prophecy that Joel would see that this final battle on earth will take place and God will roar out of Zion in this battle and it will take place there. 
Both Muslims and Jews believe in the end time, the final battle of all the ages will take place in this valley, the Valley of Kidron, Valley of Jehoshaphat. Where historically have Christians believed that the final battle will take place? You know? The battle of Armageddon, Megiddo, right? Now, I personally have an opinion about that, and I believe that these two valleys and these two wars are going to be, they're, they're not seeing two separate wars. They're seeing the beginning and the end of one war that's going to just spread itself from north to south, from Jerusalem all the way up to the valley of Megiddo. So, what we are seeing here with these two mountains is we've seen these, these chariots racing in between the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Zion, racing for war. And they're being sent out over all the world. And they're going to bring judgment from God. They're told to go and patrol the whole earth. Wearsby seems to see these horses and these chariots as being held back by God. It's almost like the way the language it reads is these horses can't wait to go out. And God has to hold them back. And he says, okay, I want you to go north. And they run north. But he holds the other one back. I want you to go south. And you go south. And this other one, and wherever the red horse goes, we don't know. He, he, he's being held back. The indication of the phrase here is the fact that God is sending them out one at a time. One judgment, then another judgment, then another judgment. And eventually they will reach the entire world with this judgment that is going to take place. And then notice what he says in Zechariah. If we go back to Zechariah at the end of... Um, uh, after they go out and they do what they're going to do throughout the whole earth in verse 8. Then cried he upon me and spake unto me saying, Behold, these that have gone towards the north and the, and the country, these that have gone out, all of these strong ones that have gone out, have quieted my spirit in the north country. In other words, God's spirit is angry. The NIV translates this word, has quieted my wrath. I don't know, I don't believe that's a good translation because the word here is the word spirit. And I think this is talking about the spirit of the Lord. However, that spirit of God is angry. God's spirit right now, today, is upset. His wrath is filled up. God is sitting on his throne. And you remember in one of the visions, he's stirring, he's angry. In fact, in, in vision one, go back to vision one in chapter one, when he saw these horses go around the whole world and then he came back and told that everything is still and at rest. And the angel of the Lord answered in verse 12 of chapter one and said, Oh Lord, how long will you have mercy on Jerusalem? And the Lord answered the angel that uh, talked with me good words and comfort. Verse 14. So the angel that communed with me said, Cry thou, say, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous. I'm jealous for Jerusalem. I'm jealous for Zion with a great jealousy. Verse 15. I am very displeased. Look at verse 2 of chapter 1. The Lord hath been sore displeased. You see, God is angry. And God's anger is geared specifically towards the sin of this world. I, I like to see this as God has a bellyache. <laughs> you ever had a bellyache? Your stomach was angry because you ate something spicy? 
and you woke up at midnight, you couldn't stay still, and it just was there, and it was, it was heavy, and, and you just you felt like you needed a, you know, a bucket or a bag. Or maybe you're on a plane, if you've had that before, where you've been on a plane, and you, you start going up and down, and you get a little bit woozy. Or maybe you're, in, you know, you're going to grandma's for Christmas, and you're, you know, they happen to be in North Carolina, and you're going up them, and all of a sudden, you've got, a, you've got an angry, upset stomach. One author states this, God's spirit is crying out with a terrible moan. Evil has not been finally dealt with, and that makes God mad. In the first vision, God's anger was against the whole world and against his people as he's sore, displeased. God is not happy. And I would say today, when God looks down upon this earth, just like he looked down in the days of Noah, and he looks around and it, he repented that he even made man. Because everywhere he saw, to and fro, he saw the evil of man flourishing. And the imagination of man's heart was everywhere evil. And when God looks down upon this earth and he sees whether it's in White House or Las Vegas or it's in Huntsville or it's in Dubai or it's in Tokyo or Hong Kong or in Europe, wherever he looks around the world, he sees sin flourishing, Jesus the Savior being diminished and, and hated and his word and his truth being disobeyed and ignored when he's gone all out of his way over and over and over again to show his mercy and love to a people, according to Romans chapter 1, that shake their fist in his face. And it makes God angry after all of the love, after all of the care, after year after year and century after century, not wiping out man, but giving them an opportunity to come to the truth. And one day that evil will culminate into a city and in a system that will be worldwide under the leadership of the Antichrist who is going to be pushed by the devil and God again will look on the whole world and see evil everywhere and it will make God, just like it does today, angry. And notice in this verse when it says that God's anger that is spread, he's, 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 um, he's upset and when they come back and these horsemen have accomplished what he's told them to do, they come back and quiet his spirit. Interesting, this word quiet is the Hebrew noach. It's used for the first time in the Bible in Genesis 8 and verse 4. And the ark rested on Mount Ararat. In other words, the ark was being tossed to and fro on the floods of the world. And it was going here and it was there. I imagine it was probably a bumpy ride. He had to take his Dramamine. Noah did. And he had, you know, just keeping the animals and everybody safe. And then finally, that tossing and turning and chaos. And eventually the ark stopped, settled, and rested. No more chaos. No more upset stomach. What a wonderful and at the same time terrifying picture of the Spirit of God. You see, God needs a dose of dealing with sin to help settle his stomach ache. And the only way that it's going to happen is when God says, Enough! Where are my chariots? Send them to and fro throughout the earth, one right after another, and let's deal with this wickedness in this world. 
And when the last of devil's stronghold is set up in Babylon and he gathers all the nations of the world to fight against God, God will finally send his chariots out and pour his wrath upon the earth like never before. And once the devil is smashed and the nations of this world have been defeated, then and only then will God find rest. You see, there is no kingdom. There is no peace on earth. There is no end to rebellion and famine and bloodshed and war and strife and murder and abuse. There's no end to any of that until God finally, for the last time, deals with sin. And it's going to happen. And he's going to use these angelic beings as a form of punishment, as a, as a judgment. And we see them in Revelation 6 as they come out and they are, they're going to unleash the wrath of God upon the earth. You say, well, what a harsh God he is. No, what a patient God he's been. And after 2,000 years, one nation after the next, literally destroying our world, Bombing one another and killing one another. Whether you're in Chicago or downtown Huntsville or you're in the Middle East. There's a problem in our world and there's a problem of sin. Yes, Jesus has come and paid for the penalty of sin. And he has appeased the wrath of God. But the only door into the kingdom of heaven, the only way that you can enter into the kingdom of the Messiah and into the family of God is if you come through the door of Jesus Christ. The whole picture of Noah and the ark is all pictured through. Jesus is the only door to bypass the wrath of God that's going to come to this world. Not by flood, but one day Peter says and Revelation says, by fire and judgment and pestilence. And when they reject the Son, then these are going, this is going to be the outcome. And it will culminate in a final battle in the valley of decision, in the valley of God's judgment. Probably all the way up until the Antichrist, maybe his last few group of soldiers have made through all of the evil and the fighting and are going to come up the valley of the Kidron and attempt to get to the Mount Zion and then Jesus will stand there and unleash the sword, Revelation chapter 19, and the bronze feet and the fire and just with one word from his mouth, he will wipe them all out. You say, well, why does, why does Jehovah need chariots? Well, he doesn't, but he chooses to use them. Why does he need us? He doesn't, but he chooses to use us as instruments, again, of, of, his, uh, of his patience and his mercy and his love. So that is the final of the eight visions. And I'll just show you this in verse 9. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Take of them of the captivity. So what's going to happen is he opens his eyes and the morning has come, all right? Mr. Scrooge has opened his eyes and he's seen his, you know, three spirits, all right? This is what we're seeing. It's Christmas morning, you know, all right? So he, he's done. He's got these, and what a long night it was, all right? I'm sure probably Zachariah's stomach is probably a little turning here a little bit. He wakes up, and then as soon as he gets up, I don't know if he's reading his devotions, like, man, I need to read some Bible. <laughs> I've got all these visions, these terrible, and that wicked lady in the barrel, that was just terrible. So, I mean, he's got all this in his mind. And, so he, he, and then all of a sudden, the word of the Lord comes to him. So the visions stop. 
Now, Zechariah is fully awake, and as a prophet, he's being told directly by God, I want you to go out in the street, and I want you to do something. I want you to take an offering. Take an offering. Well, we don't have time to talk about the offering and the coronation that's going to come after the offering, but... Um, I think a vision would be able to at least see exactly what God is going to do, what he's going to bring after the war, after the battle. What is going to happen? A king is going to be crowned. When all evil is dealt with, a kingdom has now come, and a king walks in, and he's going to be crowned. But there's been an offering that's collected because they're going to hand him gifts. And they're going to hand him something. Interesting, when you come into the presence of a king, what do you bring? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Hey, here in Zechariah, it's just gold and silver. But when you come into the presence of a king, and he's going to be crowned king of kings and lord of lords, you better have something to present him when he gets here. And, and Zechariah's told, go take an offering. I want you to make something, and I want you to put it on his head. Right. Father, thank you for the time we've had this evening. Uh, Lord, many of these apocalyptic passages and prophecies um, take, take a, a lot of study and, and a lot of comparison with other passages that are very similar in nature. And, um, but Lord, in the, in the long run, we're seeing the same picture, whether we're in Zechariah or Daniel or Ezekiel or Joel or John, or Jesus on the Mount of Olives teaching the Olivet Discourse? It's the same story. Sin is going to be dealt with. The evil son of perdition is going to rise its ugly head up. And he's going to attempt to rule the world. And in the end, God has the final say. And through these judgments, will save and rescue Israel but will judge the nations who have rebelled against him. And then when all is said and done, and the final swipe of your divine wrath, the sickle or the sword, is, is put to those who have mocked and rebelled against you, there stands Jesus, ready to be crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. And uh, Lord, what a joy to see this vision, even for Zechariah, to just see that God is not finished and there is still yet to be um, prophecies fulfilled. Even today, this vision is not yet fulfilled. It is still to come and we are waiting for it. And we cry out, Lord, how long? Uh, maybe this year. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen. All right, thank you this evening. God bless you. And... Merry Christmas.